Okay, as in go. Sorry, one second. Fork Tales, a podcast that feeds the food and beverage world. Oh, awesome. Fortales is brought to you by Vigor, a branding and marketing agency for passion-driven, innovative restaurant, beverage, and hospitality brands. Learn more at vigorbranding.com. If you love what we're serving up, please give Fortales a five-star review on your podcast service of choice. Think of it as a tip for good service. Everyone, today I have the honor of being joined by Alonzo Casaneda. He is the VP of Brand Development and Strategy for Savory Fund. So, Alonzo, say hello. Give a little bit of backstory. Hello, and thanks for having me. This is uh, this is great. I appreciate it. Um, so, Alonzo Castaneda, currently Vice President of Brand Development and Strategy for the Savory Fund. Uh, been in the business for a long time. Uh, like a lot of us uh, now nowadays, love this business. And I started my career uh, at 18, uh, professional, I guess, a management with Chidoba Mexican Grill. Back then, it was called Zteca, and we had under 10 units. Um, and we were figuring things out, getting ready to grow the company. Uh, they had good funding, and um, started working with them. We started franchising. Um, we, there was just, like I said, probably eight GMs and uh, a few of us started wearing different hats, helped the company expand, um, learned a lot with, with, uh, Qdoba, had some great relationships, worked with them until the acquisition with Jack in the Box. Um, and that was a fantastic experience. Later on, I worked for another small company called Paradise Bakery out of Arizona. Um, again, that one was uh, in the teens and units. I think we had 13 and uh, helped grow that um, with franchising as well um, until the acquisition of Panera. Um, and then worked with them for, for quite a bit. Um, after that, I am in Salt Lake City, Utah. So I joined the company called Cafe Rio, uh, another fantastic fast casual chain, excellent food. It was growing fast. Um, that was about 14 units and grew with them. Uh, we grew that to about a hundred and, uh, had another acquisition. Um, so at that point, my career, um, had turned into growth companies just, you know, out of being at the right place at the right time and, uh, choosing the right companies. Um, I've been fortunate to work for the companies that I've chosen to work for. And that's been, that's been great for me. Um, then I joined Four Foods Group, and uh, Four Foods Group we we had a uh, company called Neater's Bakery and Cafe, um, another franchise system. We we grew that to uh, over fifty. Uh, the franchisor had four units. We had forty five plus. Um, at that time, a deal came to us. Uh, where we had an opportunity to acquire a block of 48 stores in Little Caesars. And, um, you know, we had uh, experience growing our needers concept. We had a good team. There was a few of us that had experience growing concepts. 
So uh, it was it was a good opportunity to buy this block of 48 Little Caesars. It was never our model, never our intent. If they would have said, hey, come and buy two Little Caesars or buy one, we probably would have wouldn't have done it. Uh, but it's a great company, very profitable if, if you're running it the right way. So we jumped in, uh, grew from 48 to 78, and then um, sold that off. Uh, Neaters, we, we sold that uh, as well. And uh, Four Foods Group uh, sailed into the sunset after those two sales. Uh, Four Foods Group closed its doors and lived happily ever after. And I joined the Savory Fund. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, yeah, which is, which is where you are today. So, uh, you know, what's great is obviously noticing a pattern, um, <laughs> you know, uh, in this history. And that's awesome. Um, and I think when small brands, let's just, uh, let's call small brands. And I don't mean that to be, um, demeaning, but that five to 15 unit concept, maybe franchised, maybe corporate owned, still looking to franchise. I, I think this growth from that moment to 50, 100, 200 seems very um, enigmatic and uh, tough. Um, so how, do, how did you crack that code? What, what has been some keys to success in getting from, quote unquote, small to more of a medium sized uh, chain system? Hitting lots of walls. <laughs> 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 Excellent. So you're going to need self-protective gear. Um. <laughs> um, like I said, I've been fortunate to to been able to grow some amazing brands and, uh, you know, had uh, acquisitions by, by giant corporations. But during that growth phase, um, myself and, and the team that, that I work with in each individual company, um, we, we learned a lot, right? And, and we learned a lot on going fast, but not too fast, what's the right pace, or going fast, but still looking, you know, 20 steps ahead. Um, just learning. It's, uh, you know, sometimes we, um, we bring on uh, leaders and um, they, have, they have good experience and we bring them on and there's nothing that they can read, nothing that they can do that will teach them, but their experience they have. You can't replace experience. So, um, you know, just going through those to those growth phases with those companies and learning what works, what doesn't um, really, really helped set up my my career. Um, I think every stage uh, in the restaurant business is, is difficult. It has its own, you know, little challenges. The restaurant industry in itself is hard. Mm -hmm. Right. Um <clears throat> Our founder at the Savory Fund always jokes that him and his wife said, you know what, let's do restaurants. That looks easy. <laughs> That's how they jump into it. Um, but uh, every phase has its challenges. And uh, I, I believe that the initial stage from 5 to 50 uh, is especially hard because you have to set a really good foundation. You have to set a really good culture. And when you get that momentum, you have to grab it by the horns and not let go. You got to keep that momentum. So um, understanding that and setting up that good foundation uh, is so important. And I've been lucky to been able to be gone through that now several times. Yeah. What, what would you say some of the tenets of a, of a quote unquote good foundation is? And by the way, I love the bull references. You can drop those all day long. Um, <laughs> <laughs> our logo is the bull in case you didn't know. Um, <laughs> so yeah, some, some quick 
tenets of, of good foundations, uh, obviously financial and, you know, P&L statements that actually work are a good one. Uh, but what else have you seen as like one of those keys to success? Yeah, well, I think that you, you always have to be, you know, sometimes companies get, get um, funding and they, they slowly forget to be scrappy. Um, you know, we're a, a, you know, uh, our profits are, are very small. And if you don't watch them in restaurants, um, they vanish fast. So mm -hmm. just always watching, uh, and having the culture of, um, you know, not spending in something that, uh, you shouldn't. I did a, uh, we had our own, uh, our own, uh, small conference for young restaurateurs and we had a segment called, um, it's only $50 a month. We should buy it <laughs> <laughs> because there's all these services that come to you as a young operator and they offer you, you know, um, this better music system and this extra cool first aid kit and power washing service and window washing service. And we'll come and wash your floors and we'll sanitize your restrooms and, uh, this extra little software that tells you the weather every day. And, you know, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but you got all these services that come to you and young operators sometimes or inexperienced ones will say, well, I need that because the sales pitch was fantastic. So I, I do need to know that. And I, I need to know this. So the middle of your PL fattens up and then all of a sudden your profits are so low because you forget that it's $50 a month per location, you know, mm -hmm. but it, sometimes you don't need any of that. You just need to have the, the basics. You, you have to be brilliant at the basics. And if you have great service, if you have great quality food um, and a clean environment and you're consistent with it, that's all you need. And you can take mm -hmm. that to 15 restaurants plus. Um, and then you start incorporating some of these, some of these other systems. Yeah, it's funny because uh, in my book, um, shameless plug, uh, in my book, I mentioned it's a very similar scenario. It's like, if you're not careful, um, you can basically get rid of all your money. It's pretty easy. Yeah. Um, and everybody has a fantastic sales pitch and technically what they're selling is valuable, but you really have to choose what's needed right now, especially in that early stage, what's needed today and a little bit of tomorrow, not necessarily what's needed five years from now. And that's not true about everything, but, uh, you know, one of the things I tackle, uh, in the book is, do you need branding? And I know that seems very a very bad way to promote what I do um, at Vigor, but it's true. Like if you're a mom and pop shop opening your first or even second location, do you really need to spend fifty, sixty thousand dollars developing a brand identity? And and my answer is probably not. You know, you can go get something that is good that will help you put the uh, the name on the shingle, as it were, and focus on what you just said operations, get those systems smooth, make sure you're optimizing your PL without, you know, and your food costs without hurting your food and get those systems because that's a good basis for growth. And then when you hit that 10, 15, 20 mark, let's take a look at the brand. Let's take a look about how do you spark this into the next level? Um, so shifting gears, you, you have, you got all this, uh, all this, can um, I say, can I just say, oh, yeah, yeah. I love what you just said, man, because I, I say that a lot. If you have five units, nobody, nobody cares about your branding yet, or they're not looking at your branding 
Like you're thinking you should spend money on your branding. Your food is your branding. And sometimes, you know, your marketing budget is just getting your food in people's mouth. If you believe that your product is good, then use your marketing dollars to give out free food for the PTA and for the faculty at your local high school and bring in the football team and just feed it to them for free. That's your marketing. And then have some nice looking uniforms. Make your staff look good. That's, mm-hmm. your, that's your branding. That's your marketing within your four walls and your product. That's all you need. Yeah. And, and they're, they're your sales, quote unquote, salespeople, your staff. And so, oh my goodness, yes. you know, while, while I think, um, so I just want to be very clear, like everything we just said is branding, um, but it doesn't have to require a huge budget to do it. And it's one of the reasons why I wrote the book is we get called a lot from a mom and pop who's starting up and they have stars in their eyes because it's a, it's an easy business to be in. <laughs> and you know, what I say to them is, Hey, this is what we're going to charge. And then I have a very candid conversation. Like, look, if you're well-funded, you're looking to, and by well-funding, I mean, you have millions in the bank and you're looking to actually grow a small chain, then great. Let's start this off right. If you're not, and you're, you need to be scrappy, you need to be smart. Um, Read the book, apply some of these DIY techniques to get to that next level. Um, because everything you do does build a brand. So if you do it wrong, you're doing yourself a disservice. But the logo, the colors, just get something together. Hire a local uh, one-person studio to do a rock star job. And I hate to use the word or the phrase good enough, but it's good enough. you know. And then just focus on the things that we had just said. Um, so speaking of scrappy, you... Four food foods group goes off into the sunset. There's maybe a tear shed, some high fives and hugs. And now you're at savory fund. And so savory fund has, uh, already has a number of brands underneath it. Mobetta's Hawaiian, R and R barbecue, Pincho burgers and kebabs, the crack shack via three, one, three pizzeria and swig. Um, that, that's quite a hefty portfolio. So how did savory fund start and, and what's the purpose and vision for the company? Yeah. So, you know, there is this stage that we're talking about with brands that have, let's just say, four to eight units. And they're in this ugly duckling stage where they're too big for friends and family to help financially, but they're still too small for for, uh, banks to help them as well or even pay attention to them. So they're like, okay, where do I get help from? Where do I get funding from? And... um, you know, if they're lucky, they do find the right financial backing, but it's hard at that stage, right? Right. Um, so we identified that. We identified that within the Savory Fund, there was a group of us that understand that stage, have experience in that stage, and we know what they need to grow. Mm-hmm. So we said, this is going to be our model. This is going to be our market where we find these brands that, uh, have so much potential to become a great emerging brand, emerging concept. And um, all they need is a team of restaurant experts, uh, the right funding, and uh, we'll help them grow. Our model is to help them grow from four to, let's just say, you know, 40. We're all them 50 or under is, is our model. Um, and, and then we find the bigger PE firm that will take them from, 40 to 250. Mm-hmm. Um, so we identified that need and that's what we set out to do. That's great. Um, so what, what, what interested me about this is 
it's quite the lineup and and you've really ticked the boxes of just about every kind of concept that at least has legs um do you feel that there's something missing yet? Are you on the hunt for another, uh, another like food style or um, most of these I, I believe are fast casual or QSR? Am I, am I wrong there? Most of them are, are fast casual. We have uh, two casual dining concepts. Excellent. And that, that comes with its own challenges. We'll get into that in a minute. Um, so most recently, I think this is this is one of the big splashes. Is you close on the acquisition of Hash Kitchen. For those that don't know, Hash Kitchen is a primarily breakfast brunch spot. I think what's notable to me isn't necessarily the food; it's the DJ. Uh, so it's sort of like the, it's sort of the morning party, right? And uh, it definitely has a lovely niche uh, based in Arizona. Um, and, and I have a lot of eyes on it because of our work with OverEasy, which is technically a competitor by food, but I think we identified it as not really a competitor um, for many reasons. So what what drove, what really attracted you to that brand? Uh, what gets you excited about it? The DJ. Do we have to go any further? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's Eggs Benedict and, uh, and uh, you know, a little John playing every morning. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, funny story. Um, in my 20s, I used to own and run a nightclub in Palm Springs, California for several years. And that was a great time in my life. Um, you know, enjoyed it. Great experience there as well. Um, and uh, I thought I was done with, with DJs. And then this is my 40s DJ life now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're still listening to the same songs. <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't let me near the playlist. <laughs> um, so how do you how do you start to scale that concept? I mean, that's such a unique element. It certainly adds another, um, you know, line item on the budget. Uh, to have a DJ that that's available, that you trust, that that spins great tunes, mm. um, that seems like a whole other headache. That just quite honestly, a lot of operators might say, "I just don't want to do that." Well, see, the thing is, um, you asked what I like about it, and we joked around a little bit, but there is uh, in the casual dining space, um, people want um, entertainment. Right. They want that experience when you go out and you're going to go and sit down with your friends and have a server and have to pay a tip. Um, you want that experiential dining and hash kitchen has all of that. It mm -hmm. is uh, from the food, which is, um, you know, created with the intent of uh, showcasing what you're about to eat in a very exciting way. Um, to the ambience and the music and the Bloody Mary bar, um, all of it. it. It's just great experiential dining. And that's where you take your friends to come into town. That's They have a lot of business meetings. Um, it's just, it's just a, a high energy, high energy dining. Yeah. I mean, but, but how do you scale that? So um, having a DJ at each location is pretty... Uh... I mean, that's that's a, a logistical nightmare in a lot of ways. You know, is there a future, especially when you're talking about 10xing the size, right? Yeah. Um, taking it from the six locations to 50 or 60 or whatever. Um, is there a world, I mean, maybe you haven't even thought about this yet, but is there a world where like the DJ gets centralized and it gets pumped in via video and audio to all the locations so everyone's listening to the same thing? Um, has that even been discussed? 
No, I, I, you, this is where we, we, we would lose what Hash Kitchen is. You need the live DJ on there. You know, there's a guy up. I mean, there's a DJ booth in every restaurant. And, uh, yeah. you know, he's up there with his headphones and he's spinning and he's waving to people and people go and request songs. And, you know, I, I being, being the guy that has hired DJs before and currently um, with the Savory Fund, we're going to end with about around 50 openings this year, 50 new store openings this year. Oh, and nice. for some of those openings, for several of them, we, we hire DJs for the grand opening day. Um, so maybe DJs have a bad rep of, of not being reliable, but you got to find the professional ones, the guys that are, that's their, their career. And they're actually very reliable, very responsible, and they do a great job. Um, once you tap into that network, um, it's, it's not a complicated thing to have a consistent DJ for you. Nice. Yeah. I I think, uh, you know, where I'm coming from on that is also thinking about just, I mean, let's dive into it. The the biggest crisis the industry has seen isn't necessarily the shutdowns from the pandemic before everyone gets up in arms. And that was definitely terrible. I think it's the after effects on labor, you know, um, finding great help, forget great, finding good labor, just, just good, just solid, dependable, shows up on time, interested, engaged, uh, follows the training manual, like, you know, executes, doesn't call in sick at the last moment within reason. Obviously, you know, COVID's very real. We know that. Um, the DJ adds another layer to that, but the overall labor market, have, have you seen those challenges in some of your brands and, and what has been the approach to, uh, I hate to use the word fighting against it, but, but fighting against it. Yeah. Well, first of all, just finding people that show up for interviews. <laughs> I think <laughs> the operators listening to this will agree that, you know, you get all of a sudden you got all these applications. You're like, hey, this is great. Maybe we're turning the corner. And uh, the flake ratio of people that show up is just ridiculous. But this is the other thing with, with uh, you know, this experiential dining. Um, yes, we are. We are also experiencing the challenges of finding talent um and just finding the right amount of people to staff our stores we also go through that but because you have a cool brand like the hash kitchen or like via 313 um or the crack shack out of san diego you know pincho out of miami there's these cool brands you walk in there's a good vibe um people gravitate to doors to those more and um you know they want to work there and uh because they're high volume and um, they have good um, good flow of customers. We're, we're busy. Then tips are also good for the staff. So that definitely helps um, is to to identify your brand and your branding that we were talking about. You know, mm-hmm. the four walls and uh, the staff stays and uh, they'll bring their friends because it's a cool place to be. It's cool to say I work here. And uh, tips are great. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, you know, a lot of uh, folks that I've spoken with in the industry, I mean, I know some that are paying back of house staff. I mean, <laughs> to, to the point where if I if I actually liked working in a kitchen, I was like, man, maybe I'll go work there. Like, <laughs> you know, like and it's not that I, it's not that I make like a little bit of money. I mean, the, the amount of hourly that they're getting, I'm just like, wow. And yet they still have problems. And so I think uh, if, if we get 
not to get into the politics, but I have to use it as a way to explain the different points of view. You know, on one side of the proverbial aisle, uh, the claim is that it is uh, the government's role in paying people to stay home, quote unquote. On the other side of the aisle, it's workers are not treated well and they're not paid enough. And so I think the the conversation is centralized on actual compensation. But from a lot of operators, I've heard many other different factors that do play a large role in addition to compensation. Um, what, in your experience, what do you think are some of those drivers uh, that are preventing people from securing a job in, let's just say, our restaurant industry, not just with your brands, but the industry in general? Sorry. So uh, let, let me ask you to ask that question again. Uh, yeah. What's preventing those people from securing a job? Like, Yeah. Yeah. Why, why don't they want to come to work? Why don't they well, want yes. to work in this industry? You know? Well, you know, I, I think that the restaurant industry has had a bad rap for years of being a tough business and working their employees, you know, hard and, work-life balance and all this. And I think we need to squash that because that was old school back in the day, you know, where, where, yeah, it, it was all of that, but you got, you got very educated restaurateurs and operators now. And, uh, you know, we take care of our people and work-life balance is great. And, um, you do have, I, I've, you know, when we acquire a new brand, I get involved with the initial, uh, hiring and interviewing of our general managers, district managers, and you do hear stories still of, uh, you know, brands that are maybe a little bit too big or disconnected uh, from their operations. And you have mm. a district manager that uh, is not very well trained not very capable. And they don't pay attention to their GMs and they're working them six days and they don't really care. Um, but that's just uh, a small scenario of doesn't mean that company is bad. It just means they haven't caught on to that district manager. As soon as the, you know, the regional or the VP of ops finds out, they'll come in and they'll fix that. And um, I, I haven't run into anyone that just completely doesn't care. So, so we care about our people. The problem is that you got the gig economy now, right? You can go mm. Uber um, and you can go in DoorDash and um, make good money and not have to wash dishes till 1.30 in the morning. Right. Hard. That's tough. Yeah, it's really tough. I don't. I don't think you can make uh, dishwashing a gig economy job. <laughs> Come in for an hour, wash some dishes. You know, you know that's yeah. tough. Funny, funny story. I we opened up a um, a concept. We opened up a new store, and uh, you know, opened up strong, super busy. We were bringing in uh, dishwashers at above twenty dollars an hour, um, and there was three of them. So that, you know, it wasn't just so hard. Mm -hmm. And um, I was that there that day when the dishwasher woke up to the kitchen manager, took up his apron and said, I'm done. See you later. I don't want to work this hard. That's what he said. That was it. And, and it's twenty dollars um, an hour. Let's just take a moment to reflect on that. Twenty dollars an hour to wash dishes. Yes. It's crazy. And um Fast forward, probably two months later, um, I walk into an event and the same individual is there uh, as a part of the security staff. I don't know how much they were getting paid, but it was definitely an easier job. Sure. Yeah. 
That's tough. Um, and, and so I think that's that's definitely what I wanted to unpack a little bit because some of the jobs are quote unquote labor intensive. Let's just call it that. But the the future growth for for go-getters, for people that are dedicated to a job well done, dedicated to learning, I mean, sky is the limit. I mean, let's look at other career paths here. You go to college, you spend a lot of money in college, you know, good or bad, you know, depending on what you uh, majored in, you end up in an internship making minimum wage, maybe. Um, and then you work your way up, but you hit a ceiling pretty quick. Whereas I see the restaurant industry as a path where you don't necessarily need that college education. Um, initially, uh, you get into the kitchen. Yes, you work your rear end off. Um, you're you're going to sweat. Sorry, it's true. Um, and then you can find a path pretty high level. I mean, I've known managers and district managers that did not have college education. Now, I think at some point, it's really important to understand business mechanics and yada, yada, so you can continue up. But the path from dishwasher to CEO, it's not that long in the industry. No. You know, it's it's not that far away. No, and I'm sure that you, you, I think you just said it. You and I know many people in the industry that have taken that path and uh, have an amazing, uh, amazing life and career in the restaurant industry. Yeah, and it's it's and, and yeah. So using me as an example, I'm one who got out of the industry and became an ancillary. Uh, to see the industry, you know, a, a tool, a, uh, I'm definitely a tool, um, a, uh, <laughs> a consultant, you know, um, a healthy helper, a partner. Um, so there, there's so many paths that stem from the industry. And I just don't think that story is told very well. Um, so maybe, maybe there's a path ahead there. Um, so beyond the labor, um, let's tap into this a little bit. So if I go down the list, yes, we had the shutdowns that, that caused a lot of uh, ripple effects in the industry. We have labor shortages. We have supply chain issues. We have rising costs of, um, everything, you know, a lot of it built upon gas and fuel, uh, deficiencies and expenses. Um, all these things ladder in to the books. And at some point, Restaurant leaders, uh, whether you're a single unit or the uh, manning the helm or femaling the helm of um, a very large enterprise, at some point you have to look at the pricing and you have to make the hard decision to raise those prices. Have you come up across that yet? And if you have strategy, thinking, how do you how do you deliver that? Because you're just now one more expense in people's pockets. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, you know, up to this day um i don't know that i've talked to anyone that has not raised prices um we try to uh hold off as much as we could um but you know it's it's uh this whole thing has been unprecedented uh from your paper and plastic supplies to your produce and your proteins um it's just gotten out of hand and prices have gone up and um, we, we have to transfer a little bit of that to the consumer because we don't want to go down in quality. We have to maintain our quality. We have to maintain what the brand is, what the customer expects. And um, you know, the consumer is still expecting great quality and this, at least presently, the consumer is not shying away from spending a little more. Yeah, it's tough. A lot of people don't realize that plastic is directly tied to the cost of gasoline and fuel. 
it's it's a petroleum based product so you know fuel goes up plastic goes up and it, you start to really realize quick how much plastic we use every day uh, as a result so let's turn the tide here let's look ahead let's have some fun what is next for savory fun what is on the horizon for you guys um you know we have um we, we have a few brands that are maturing uh, through our our model so um some very exciting times for those brands to uh, to have an exit from Savory Fund and start growing uh, past 50 units and across the nation. All mm-hmm. of our brands are in about three to four states, but we're very excited to see them, you know, really break out into in, in, into the, the United States. So that's really cool. Um, and then uh, we are opening probably 65 plus restaurants next year alone. Oh, wow. So, you know, growing our new concepts and uh, we're, we're probably going to bring on um, a few more concepts in 2022. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, that's fantastic. So the other the other thing that I'll throw in there is that um, I'm sure you know this, but the food and beverage technology space is blowing up. Yeah, um, there's a lot of great solutions. The, uh, you know, the food and beverage industry has always kind of uh, lacked a little behind the retail industry technology-wise. And I think uh, that's been accelerating and we're catching up and we're getting these great solutions to make our businesses more efficient, more intelligent, um, and more profitable. And uh, we are looking to invest into that space as well. That's amazing. Um, so final, final question. Last meal on earth, what are you going to have? <laughs> you know, there is funny you ask that because there is a plaque in our offices at everyone's desk that asks what's yeah. the meal. And mine says lingonberry crepes. <laughs> mm, that and sounds delicious. People see it and they're like, what? That's what you would pick. And so I would my I would say my answer is breakfast because I would get the full breakfast. Eggs over easy, hash browns well done. And lingonberry crepes. Some sometimes they call them Swedish crepes, but yeah. uh, that is my jam. That is my jam. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, hey, this has been great. Um, I love that you took the time out to come on and share all this insights and all this information. Um, thank you so much, and I can't wait to uh, see where Savory Fun goes as well as yourself, and see how your trajectory continues to go upward. I appreciate it, man. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Cool. Uh- If you love what we served up, please follow us at Vigor Branding on Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Medium. Fork Tales is produced by the team at Vigor. Audio and video post-productions provided by Zencaster. Music performed by Jet Trash and licensed through musicbed.com. Joseph handles his own hair, makeup, and stunts. Copyright 2003 to 2021, Vigor Graphic Design, LLC, all rights reserved.